Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. This edition, we're back at the Narrating the Nation conference to hear about changing ideas of representation at the museum. And at the other end of the file, Jennifer Walsh is contemplating the Zuckerverse. But we begin with a dose of meta-science from Stuart Ritchie. Up there among the top learnings of the pandemic, and it is a competitive field, has been a new sense of the unsteady nature of scientific knowledge. But even before the chicanes of health advice, there are other problems with science, how it's performed and how it's disseminated, problems which psychologist Stuart Ritchie has been tracking for many years. Ritchie published Science Fictions in 2020 and has recently updated that book's tale of science's sins of action and omission with a look at how the practice fared in the pandemic. His own journey into meta-science began when he attempted to verify a strange experimental finding in his own area, as he told Culture File. There's one uh, experiment that uh, you see a list of words on the screen, so just fairly boring words, mountain, weekend, oatmeal, whatever, and then you have to do a memory test. How many of those words can you remember? Then the computer selects half of the words and shows you them again, and you never see the other half of the words again. And that's it. That's the end of the experiment. So what he claimed was that the words that the participants were about to see again were remembered better on the test. So it's a bit like studying for an exam, then sitting the exam, then going home and opening up your textbook again and studying after it, and that somehow going back in time to help you uh, uh, do better on the exam, which doesn't make any sense in uh, the standard laws of physics, uh, because time, you know, tends to march onward and doesn't go backwards. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, he claimed that this was the case. And in fact, you know, if you look at the setup of the experiment, if this, his results were real, it could only have been explained by uh, uh, psychic powers, if, if, you know, if, if this was really what you found. Even though it's an unusual finding, that passed the sniff test of peer review. Indeed, it got into a very prestigious journal, which uh, um, they do very good, you know, as, as good as, as good peer review as you get anywhere in the scientific literature. And it got lots of media attention and so on, and time traveling uh, effects and all this sort of stuff. And psychology proves psychic powers and so on. It was, it was all over the news. So we thought we would run a replication study. So we ran exactly the same experiment again with the same words the same uh, setup with our undergraduates at the University of Edinburgh and also at Goldsmiths in Hertfordshire as well. I did some some collaborators there who did who did uh, the same uh, study. So we actually had three times the sample size and we found nothing. So we found no psychic effects whatsoever, um, as you might expect if you you know accept the laws of physics. And, and that's all that's all good, right? Someone publishes a, an effect, someone comes along and tries to replicate it. We try to send our paper reporting our failed replication to the same journal that he had sent, uh, uh, that he had published his findings in. And they said, no, we're rejecting your paper. We're not even going to consider it for sending out for peer review because we just never publish replication studies ever. We're not interested in positive replication studies. We're not interested in negative replication studies. We just never publish replications. And we thought this was uh, uh, you know, a really bad example of how the scientific literature can be distorted because you know the journal is interested in publishing the really exciting, flashy findings, but is not interested in someone coming along and checking whether those flashy findings are correct or not. And you know, I'm not saying, by the way, that uh, we think these results were were fraudulent or anything like that. It's just they might have been mistaken in some way. And there's various different uh, explanations for how those results could have come about, even without fraud and without 
the actual existence of psychic powers. But, you know, it's meant to be the case that someone, that, that the scientific literature corrects itself, right? But if you're uh, telling people, don't do any replication studies, where's the incentive to do that self-correction? That, for you, kind of pointed out that there was what you call a reproducibility crisis, that the, when, when new information arrives and it makes a splash and people are interested in it, that, that gets plenty of coverage, both in, in science publishing and outside of it. But that, in terms of the other basic uh, leg of the scientific process, is it reproducible, there was a huge crisis in that, they, that not only were they not being published, these kind of studies, they weren't being done. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole system seemed to be set up to disincentivize people to do replications, because not only are you told that we're not interested in replication studies, but you're also being told, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, that what you should be doing is finding out cool new things all the time, finding out flashy, exciting new uh, uh, results that can get into the top journals and will get you get you lots of prestige and, 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 uh, and attention and, you know, maybe, maybe even fame eventually in the, whether within the scientific community or outside of it. Um, and that's what your university wants as well. They're going to help you write a press release to put your result out into the world. And so on. no one's no university or, or very few is going to be interested in writing a press release to publicize a, you know, someone saying, well, I did the same experiment as somebody else and I found, you know, the same result. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's not what's flashy. That's not what's exciting. And at that point, psychologists started looking in much more detail. They started digging into the previous literature and saying, can we rely on this? All the stuff that we have in the textbooks that we teach to new generations of students every year. If we ran the same experiment now, would we find the same result? Or is this just a fluke? Um, or in some cases, is it actually, you know, it never happened to begin with. It was a fraudulent result. So this is where this whole replication crisis thing started about 2011, 2012. You know, it started to kind of seep out into other fields of science as well from psychology. So, you know, um, uh, economics had a similar thing. Neuroscience had a similar thing. Uh, you can see ecology and, you know, it, 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 it spreads out into other areas of research to the point where, you know, people, there's been prominent calls in lots and lots of different fields now for um, a, higher, a higher level of rigour to try and ensure the, the replicability of the results. I mean, the journal is supposed to be the gatekeeper there, but it, it one of the real important gatekeepers is Retraction Watch. Tell us about Retraction Watch and, and what it does. Retraction Watch is uh, this website that every time a paper is retracted from the scientific literature, uh, they will do a little um, investigation. So they'll contact the journal that it was retracted from, they'll contact the scientists who did the retraction, and sometimes they'll contact, you know, the person's university or whoever um, is relevant in the, in the case, the funders of the research, maybe, just to find out a little bit more about why papers are retracted. Still to this day, even, you know, after 10 years of discussion about replication and fraud and all that, um, in, in this replication crisis uh, discussion, still to this day, the retraction note that comes alongside a paper doesn't give many details. Sometimes it will go into, you know, the table three, line four, the number is fraudulent here, or table, you know, or, or um, there was a mistake in the calculation of this. But sometimes it just says, we noticed there are errors in this paper and we retracted it, sorry. And that's the end of it. So Retraction Watch do this amazing service, which is they, they try and find out retract on the team of scientists that publish a paper was the person that was responsible if it was a case of fraud, you know, who, who actually was it rather than just this diffusion uh, of responsibility. And Retraction Watch also have this uh, league table of the most retracted scientists in the scientific literature, the Retraction Watch leaderboard, they call it. Currently at the top, it's a, a Japanese anesthesiologist called uh, Yoshitaka Fuji, 
who has, I think, 185 papers retracted from the scientific literature, which is just, you know, dwarfs the number two and is, is really a, an astonishing number if you think about that. Uh, all those papers published in the literature claiming that he had done uh, trials into new anesthetic techniques and, in fact, none of the trials were ever, were ever done. Um, and again, there was another case actually where people raised red flags about him a good 10 years before the paper started to be retracted from the from the literature. And another case of, you know, the, the, the self-correcting process of science really dragging its feet. But it's fascinating to watch the 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 retraction watch leaderboard and the some people moving up and down on the on the leaderboard, depending on how many papers you know, someone else comes along and they've had sixty papers retracted. So the person with 50, with a mere fifty-eight retractions gets put down into sixth place or whatever it is. It's sort of the opposite of the Nobel Prize, right? The Nobel Prize is these scientists who we want to revere and who are these heroic figures who have made these massive discoveries. And the retraction watch leaderboard is the anti-Nobel Prize. You do not want to be on that. Uh, list you do not want to uh, um, uh, be be known among all these other people who are the worst ones are all fraudsters it's not just mistakes you know if you if you've had a hundred papers retracted it's not because you have made a few mistakes it's because you've had a basically a career of of fabricating or falsifying data retraction watch makes the area sound quite simple because there there are bad actors and and you know we can tell by their intense retractions of what they've done but a lot of what you kind of talk about is the the basics of how science is done what you choose to study the size of samples all these things can be quite subjective to start with and then produce what we call science but they've been set up to find a particular to find a particular answer yeah um you know the big cases on retraction watch of, of frauds are um are the things which which attract all our attention but it is still a minority and the the really scary and kind of insidious problems are ones which are more unconscious and are um are, are all these kind of subjectivities about how you analyze things and you know how you how you choose a question to analyze but but also the kind of um, unplanned choices that you make along the way of doing a scientific study and if you're not careful the the unplanned nature of it along with your particular desires that you have to see a result and you know when you're running a randomized trial of a particular new drug you often want the drug to be successful right you want to be able to say to patients we've discovered a new a new drug so if you're not careful, and there are ways of being more careful, but the, if you're not careful, there can be an unconscious bias that comes into the way you analyze your data, the way you do your research, whether that's rerunning the analysis uh, again and again until you find what you want and you can sort of give yourself a, an excuse each time you can say, well, you know, this particular data point doesn't really make sense anyway, so we'll drop that out. Or, oh, it does make sense to correct the results for the age of the participants, even if you hadn't planned to do that in the first place. Oh, it does make sense to do that because when you do it, it shows the result you want. And it's all based on this statistical system where the more you run the analyses um, because of the, the ways that probability and chance work, the more you run the analysis, the more likely you are to find a result even if that result might be a false positive. If you're giving yourself more and more and more rolls of the dice, uh, and you can, again, you can convince yourself that those rolls are, are perfectly rational, and that's exactly what I plan to do all along, of course, you can get yourself into a very bad situation where you're finding results which are, which are false positives. And that doesn't involve any deliberate fraud necessarily. You're not coming along and saying, well, I'm going to just, just uh, you know, chop down the data until it becomes the way I, I want it to look. The scary thing is that this is unconscious and a lot of people 
uh, find themselves doing it without realising. But what's fascinating to me there is that the things that are coming into conflict there is a kind of unreason that's involved in science, where a, a scientist with a long career can develop what, what we call instincts. And, you know, harnessing them is, is what makes science work in a way. And that kind of means messing a little bit with your experiments. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of scientists... Um, certainly think they've developed these kind of these kind of instincts or or or, or their kind of nose for what for what a result should look like or a data analysis should look like and i guess the replication crisis has has kind of pointed out that what a lot of scientists think is rigorous analysis is actually not and is actually you know driving them driving them away from the the the, the truth in many ways and it's not that I'm saying exploring is bad because you know that instinct that a lot of scientists have to to explore stuff to follow uh, um, you know interesting points in their data is extremely important. But the problem that we have is that a lot of the data analysis is exploratory. So scientists are just doing whatever they kind of kind of occurs to them, and they're following their instincts about the data and so on. Um, but then it's written up in the scientific paper as if this was what they had planned all along. And the problem there is that. If you just do lots of exploring, you're more likely to find you know, a false positive result, something which is just a, a statistical fluke, a statistical fluctuation. So exploring is great, but only if it's presented as being exploratory all along. What you kind of note is how it kind of clashes in many different ways with the idea of what the ethos of science is and what, the, what you call the Mertonian ethos. Tell us about Robert Merton and, and what he was trying to define. Robert Merton was an American sociologist and uh, uh, I think w one of the people who's considered you know, one of the most important and maybe one of the sort of founding fathers of what we would consider you know, sociology of science. Um, and in the 1940s, he wrote about uh, the norms of science, and they've become known as the, the Mertonian norms. And uh, these are four, not necessarily things which all scientists do, or things which you have to do to be a scientist, but, it's, but they're kind of aspirational norms. So things that you, that you maybe should aspire to if you're, if you're a scientist. So they are uh, universalism. So anyone who produces a scientific finding should have it taken seriously, no matter their, you know, their race, gender, background, the next one is disinterestedness, that scientists shouldn't have a particular interest in their uh, research. So that is not, not as, you know, in the, in the sense that they shouldn't be, uh, have a conflict of interest. So Charles Darwin famously said that a scientist should have a, a, a heart of stone when it comes to their hypothesis. They shouldn't feel any kind of emotional attachment to it, because, of course, if you have an emotional attachment, then you might start avoiding particular evidence and not looking at it in, in, in particular detail. The other one, he called it communism, but obviously that word is used for something else. So um, it's now mostly known as communalism, which is that scientists should share uh, science with the rest of the scientific community. You're meant to be sharing the method so that in theory, someone else could come and do the same experiment again. And then finally, um, it's or he called it organized skepticism. That's the final Mertonian norm, which is the idea that we should be constantly questioning rigorously assessing and criticizing each other's work all the time there had always been a small amount of interest in meta science uh, but it's had a huge explosion in the past decade you've got uh, um, even in some cases whole research centers popping up to do research on research so you know what kinds of papers get published what kinds of problems are there in the in the, in the literature 
we'll run a test of a new way of publishing or a new statistical analysis that we could do. Um, what kinds of, of uh, funding incentives could we change to improve the rigor of research? And actually not just suggesting them, but actually going out and testing them with data from the real world of how, of how science works, but also uh, an explosion in producing tools for scientists to use to make, uh, to make it easy for them to be transparent and more open and to share their data with more people uh, and to share their results with more people rather than in the past where you had this very very closed thing where journals were behind closed doors no one got access to the data you had to send a begging email to the author to say can i please see your data and that's that's not what science should be about right science should be about sharing it and uh, and making it as 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 as, uh, as available as possible you know within reason much much more science uh, and, and data should be shared with everyone to go back to that Mertonian norm of, of communalism, sharing uh, the scientific results, you can't really do science if you just have to take people's word for it and everything is kind of behind closed doors. Stuart Ritchie there in the updated version of his own volume of Meta Science, Science Fictions is out. Now, last week, we visited the Narrating the Nation conference organised by the National Museum of Ireland and NCAD, where voices and sometimes bodies from New Zealand, Russia, Pakistan, Canada, the UK and Benin gathered at a crucial moment for museums worldwide. Among the local issues covered was the representation of Irish travellers or minkair in museum collections. Travellers have traditionally been represented through the gaze of settled people, but programmes such as NM MI's Minkair Mishli have started to prioritise community voices. Culture Files' Louise Williams spoke to some of the speakers about the future of traveller representation in Ireland's National Museum. My name is Rosa Meehan. I'm a curator at the National Museum of Ireland. Uh, I work at our site in County Mayo. My name is Ondi Bardoon. I'm a member of the travelling community, sometimes called Minkairi or Pavi. I am a writer, I'm a researcher and a community activist. Where are travellers' voices in Collins Barracks and the National Museum? Well, nationally, um, traveller voices are present in the community, but they're not always heard. Um, what today we were reflecting on was previous examples, like the example of Minker Mishley, which was in the, the Toher House in Mayo. Minker Mishley Traveller's Journey exhibition opened in 2018, but that was after a process. It began with a desire expressed from the Mayo Traveller Support Group and the Western Regional Health Network to have an exhibition that they felt would be one that they could bring their the younger generation to show what traveller life was like in the past. And through that, we learned more about I suppose the fears of the community about uh, cultural appropriation, about handing over and what we might do with the information and how very important it is that at all stages the traveller voice is heard and actually the projects are traveller-led. Would you be able to paint a picture of what was shown? Well, um, I think it was very beautifully displayed. Um, our panels included the words of uh, members of the traveller community themselves. Through discussion, there were four main themes, craft, home, citizenship and religion. The objects on display were a selection of those that existed within the museum and those that were loaned in specifically from members of the community. And also included was a kind of a timeline, particular specific events that influenced traveller life, in particular the 1963 Itinerancy Act, for example. I was actually quite blessed to be involved in that kind of process. I think that's what it was. It was a process. It wasn't just a delivery of a, an archive without consultation. What we were, in a way, in a way being asked for would be to hand over, even temporarily, some of the community jewels. And that comes with the idea of trust 
ownership and the interpretation of how it was going to be started, even when it comes down to the language. Um, but that came with some considerations because people can be very protective of the language because it's moved from an open language to a very closed practice that people use as a crypto-linguistic form to, as a protective means. Um, so we even got to the stage of, of negotiating with people that it could be used and people wanted it to be used, they just wanted it to be used appropriately. What did yeah. people say when they visited the exhibition? My father's response was that he was incredibly excited to see a museum actually have items that were honoured not just displayed, but actually honoured and put into a context that it wasn't just about Travers educating settled people. It wasn't just about the settling over the views of, oh, this is what Travers did. It was that discussion space of, here is something that's part of not just Travers history, but your history too, and the wider history, and how that it very essentially belonged. And I know for him, that was very much a profound moment of welcome, but also of opportunity to see and dispose to hope that they could be extended in a very meaningful transparent but also sustainable way. There was a beauty that uh, wanted to be shown really. That was what I was hearing. There was a beauty that has been missing in the general media narrative and that's what wanted to come out. At the moment in our national culture and institutions no staff member is identifying as a member of the traveller community but we're delighted actually that uh, an advertisement has gone out today seeking um, applicants for the post of Traveller Liaison Officer. We think that will make a big difference. It's about um, visitors being able to see themselves uh, expressed in our exhibitions, but I think that also comes from a diverse workforce. Is that it then? Do you think everything's going to be sorted? Just once once no. one person has to carry all of it. Why are you laughing at me? I'm a very serious person. I think that is really, um, of course, this involves a cultural change within the museum. It is one that has already begun. It's one that needs to continue and is continuing. And I think um, this is showing goodwill. That's what this is. But, of course, one person cannot be uh, left. It's, it's all about changing. Um, as museums are continually changing in lots of ways, the idea of this is about looking at the core of our work, which is our collection, how we describe it, the language that we use, that it's not uh, culturally inappropriate or um, colonial, in, in, with inverted commas, in that sense. How do we build that relationship with the wider community? And yourself, you come from a background where you're a community worker and an artist and you are, I suppose, a, a curator, can I call you that as well, Owen? If we dared to. I dared, I did it. How do you see the future? What, what are your kind of thoughts about, is there a door opening? What, what, what are your feelings now? Um, I most certainly feel that door is opening, but it can't just be a single door. It has to be multiple doors and avenues and pathways and opportunities. And one of the things that the community is very clear on, that it's not, it's not simply a destination, it's a dance. be about a relationship, it has to be about rhythm, it has to be about the potential of failure in certain aspects so that we can actually be brave enough to actually truly achieve something meaningful and truly meaningful. But I do think that we're, I envision it as a space that is not just opening up a single exhibition but actually ch- hoping to change the fibre of an establishment that has been around for a significant amount of time that is changing, that is, I feel is very much open to change and has shown examples of how it can change but that does come with continued investment, review, consideration and long-term planning. And I do think that we, we planted some very solid seeds that if we nurture them properly they can grow but that will take mutual understanding, patience, 
courage, but also dedicated for again not just the outcomes because there's never a single one, there's multiple, um, and forever growing. But that relationship is dance and honesty, um, and it's something I'm actually genuinely, genuinely excited about. Owen Debarra Dune there, and you heard also from Rosa Meehan at the Narrating the Nation conference in Dublin. Louise Williams was the reporter. And finally, this time in Things Know Things, Jennifer Walsh is still processing news that an internet company called Meta, used to be called something else which doesn't immediately come to mind, wants to control the next version of the internet. You want that? Relax, you don't get to vote. In September, the Wall Street Journal began publishing a series of articles titled The Facebook Files. The series was made possible because of documents leaked by Francis Haugen, a former Facebook employee turned whistleblower. The articles take a highly critical look at Facebook's failures over the last few years. The platform's shortcomings on monitoring hate speech, its seeming inability to control anti-vaccine misinformation, the negative impact of Facebook-owned Instagram on the mental health of teenage girls, painting a picture of a company that places growth and profit above all else, including public good. So when Mark Zuckerberg gave the keynote address at the Facebook Connect conference a couple of weeks ago, you might have expected him to address all this negative publicity. But Zuckerberg did nothing of the sort. Instead, he used the 90-minute keynote as an opportunity to rename the company Meta and announce his commitment to building the next version of the internet, the Metaverse. The Metaverse, Zuckerberg describes, is a virtual environment an embodied internet where you're in the experience, not just looking at it. We'll navigate the metaverse with virtual reality goggles, augmented reality glasses and wrist sensors, rather than staring at screens. Zuckerberg paints a pretty far-out picture of life in the metaverse. Remote work meetings in 3D, where your avatar will mimic your facial expressions. Games of basketball with holograms of your friends who live over in New York. Smart glasses, which have mapped your home in such detail that they can remember where you put your favourite mug. And no more typing on your phone, no more text neck, because you'll be able to gesture, say a few words, or even just make things happen by thinking about them. To be clear... And the fine print at the beginning of the keynote takes pains to point out that Zuckerberg's claims are only forward-looking statements and that actual results may differ. The metaverse doesn't exist yet. This makes Zuckerberg's keynote even more bizarre. It functions as a product launch for a product that has not yet been made, as well as a massive deflection from Facebook's recent high-profile critiques. But nevertheless it's clear that some version of this is coming down the pipes. What will we regard as real in the metaverse? What will we regard as virtual? Will there be a meaningful distinction? I mean, is there even a meaningful distinction for us today? 
Reality is an admixture now, and the keynote underlines this. In the video, Zuckerberg makes his wild claims for the metaverse while walking slowly around a fake version of his home, gesturing robotically with his real human arms. The key design reference for the metaverse seems to be Gaius Baltar's house from the TV series Battlestar Galactica. Corporate cringe blends seamlessly into the supposedly authentically domestic, blends seamlessly into pop culture and I just can't tell the difference. The metaverse may be Zuckerberg's crisis-deflecting move, but he has the money to do this. The company recently announced they are funding 10,000 new jobs in the EU to make the metaverse real, and given Facebook's, sorry, Meta's strong presence in Ireland, and the government's incredibly relaxed attitude towards taxing them, it's highly likely that a good deal of the work on the metaverse will be carried out here. And I can't help wondering what Flan O'Brien would make of it all. Jennifer Walsh's Things Know, Things There. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Escapes from the Metaverse next Saturday at 6.30pm or Friday night if you're keen and grab the podcast. Till then, bye now.